0: Welcome to the Self Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? splendid response as always. I love it. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, we're really glad that you're visiting. Uh, And just in, before we get to what's on the screen, I just wanted to just add a little note. Uh, Today's a year since Laura and I and the kids moved to join you here at South, and it's it's gone very quick. And and, and I just... For me, it's just a thank you of making this a space where we felt welcome. My kids feel like they own this building. They're very proud that they've been on the roof and most people haven't and all of those different things. They know the different hiding spaces and they feel like they belong and just as someone moving to join a community, that's so important. But I do feel this tension that last week, uh, nearly ended my time with this community because I managed to insult both the Broncos and Cat Lovers within the same week, um, which, which again, like with, with the Broncos, hey, you guys did great last week. Maybe it'll continue. And, and, and you guys don't care because there's a game on right now and you're sat here. Dan, Dan Elliott's somewhere checking his phone every couple of minutes. But, but for the most part, um, like, this is where, like, 20 people like, I forgot about the game. They go dashing for the doors. Um, so, so that's fine, Broncos. With the cat thing, I don't apologize at all. Um, I just... <laughs> uh, for, for a couple of reasons. One, I've actually owned, like, 15 cats in, in my life. So I actually kind of like them, but they keep dying on me. So I have a bit of a resentment in that respect. Uh, and the other reason is... You cat lovers are so easy to wind up. It's just, like, it's just not even fun. So until you get less sensitive, it just you're easy fodder for a sermon. So there we go. Um, we survived another week, a year in. It's about that time I'm thinking about a sabbatical, which I was told is like once every two years or something like that for this role. So... We'll see where, where we get. We are jumping into this series, uh, The Book of Acts. So if you missed week one, let me just catch you really quickly uh, up to speed. We started with this question, what kind of book is this? And, and the, the sort of like smart answer is it's the Bible. But, but the, there is so much breadth to that Bible, which is 66 books with so many different authors. And, and you and I probably know if you're a reader, you jump into a book and, and you deduce very quickly what kind of book you are reading? You, you maybe know that it's a fantasy novel, you know that it's a romance novel, you know that it's fiction or know that it's nonfiction, and you do that very intuitively. But there's times that it can catch you off guard as well. If I were to throw you the line, "Once upon a time there were a princess, there was a princess." What book is that? Now, now on the surface, you'd say very quickly, "Well, it's fairy tale. It's fiction, but Once Upon a Time There Was a Princess is also the opening line to a 1997 biography on the life of Princess Diana of Wales. Of princess Diana of Wales. So, so you can be get caught off guard by just slight nuances. What kind of book are we reading when we jump in to reading a book like Acts? Well, the truth is, when Luke writes Acts, he believes he's writing history. But yet, for those of us that are 21st century people, we might say this, this isn't history as we would expect history to be written. There is so much in it that is supernatural, that is different, that is distinct, that it catches us off guard at times because Luke will write things as fact, believing that they happened. We may question whether he's accurate or not, but for him, he's writing history as he has heard it. He believes he's giving us the real stuff, and and that's why he gives us so many details, particular little things that only an avid historian would know to make sure we know that we can trust him on the little things, and therefore maybe we'll trust him on the big things. So we're going to jump into a passage today that, that is just one of those passages. If we would say that Luke... This biography of Jesus' life was about what Jesus did. Acts is then what his followers did. You could say it's Luke part one and then Luke part two. The the, the books are united. They just flow into each other. But when we say Acts is about what his followers did, there's a tension there as well because it's not really them, is it? If you have any familiarity with it, you'd say, It's not really them doing the stuff. A a better title might be something like this, the acts of Father, Son, and Spirit as they partner with humanity. And there's a lot of religious language there if you're new to the church thing. But but really, God working with humans is what the book is all about. The spectacular stuff, it's God that does it. Humanity's job is to partner with that God. And, And so we might say this. We might say that this book is our book. If you're a follower of Jesus, one of the hard things to wrestle with is this. There is nothing in this book, supernatural as it is, that cannot happen today if you partner with God. And I partner with God as these people did. Everything in this book is still up for grabs. And that in itself has been a tension point for so Many people, there's this story of a a fairly well-known pastor who, becoming converted in his sort of late teens, goes to the pastor of the church and says, when do we do the stuff? Uh, And the pastor says, well, do you mean small groups? Do you mean potlucks? What what do you mean by the stuff? And he says, no, the, the stuff that I'm reading about. There's all these things that these first followers of Jesus did that are miraculous, that are spectacular. Everything from being able to share their faith and and who Jesus was in a dynamic way so that the church grew organically like crazy all the way through to seeing people healed, speaking in different languages. And his question was, but I don't see that. It can cause us some tension. Now, maybe you have a a nice easy answer to that. Maybe you don't believe stuff like that happens today. And and we're not going to wrestle with that too much today, but, but at least on sur- the surface, there seems to be this idea in Acts that, that this Jesus story and the spirit that he's given afterwards uh, provides some kind of power for followers of Jesus to, to work in the world around us. And our question might be, well, do we still see that? So we're going to jump into Acts chapter 2. And this passage in itself is supernatural. If you have a text in front of you, you can read along. This is the New International Version, if that means anything to you. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. There's this question with this piece of the text. Did these followers of Jesus actually speak in other languages or did people just hear their own language? Again, it's a fine detail. You might want to look and research yourself, but we're not going to have a chance to get into it too much today. Utterly amazed, they asked Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Cretans and Arabs. How many of you know more than two of those places or where they are in the world? If you did, props to you, good job. I went to seminary. I definitely missed a few of them. So you are in good company if you're like, I don't know. Uh, Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Let's pray. God, as we unwrap this passage, as we ask what you might have to say to us. We ask that you would speak. There is a supernatural element to this passage, and there's all sorts of people in this room, all sorts of people watching online, and we come from all sorts of different backgrounds and have all sorts of different questions. And for some of us, the supernatural might be, okay, yeah, I can handle that, and some of us might be, I'm not sure about anything that claims this kind of thing. And yet, there's this character, this Holy Spirit that we're introduced to, and On some level, we see that he brings life and these people come alive in new ways and that in itself is compelling. So as we learn together, would you speak? Might we become alive in new ways? In the ways that we feel tired, the ways that we feel broken, weighed down by life, would you lift us up? Would you bring life to us, your people? Amen. So back to the start, I would suggest that when you look at this passage, one of the fascinating things about it is this. There's really three different groups of people that we're going to encounter. Yes, there's this character of the Holy Spirit who is central to the whole thing. We'll get to him in a second. But but there's these three different groups that, that maybe aren't super different from the groups that might be in this room. So we read at the start of the passage, when the day of Pentecost came, they were gathered all together in one place. This is the The insider group, the people that are going to experience the event, that know to a certain degree what is going on. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as. The Spirit enabled them. The event may be strange to them; it may be new to them, but they are in the middle of it. They are somewhat compelled by it. There's something that's happening to them that is unusual, that is different. They are the insider group. They are the insiders, but there's another group. There's the the curious ones. The ones that sit on the edge of the event, the ones that watch it happen, the ones that have significant questions about it. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each of them heard their own languages being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? The Galilean accent was particularly distinct. It stood out. So even for, for people on the outside, they were like, We we know where these guys came from. There's something very familiar about them, and yet the languages that they're speaking, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. There's something that's happened instantly. Now you and I would say like you can learn a language over a few months by Rosetta Stone or Duolingo or something like that, but to be able to suddenly speak in a different language and convey religious truths, well, that's a different And so that's the curious group that ask this question, amazed and perplexed. They ask one another, what does this mean? And then finally, you've got this other group. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. This is the dismissive group. And Aaron Bjorklund, our worship pastor, said to me, you should go with the line. They didn't think it was the spirit. They thought it was the spirit's. And I said, I can't pull that off. And he was right. Apparently, it doesn't work. So thanks for the tip. Um, These three groups exist within the text. They all observe what's happening in different ways with different expectations. Some of them believe it because it happened to them. Others are observant and interested on the fringes still, but with questions. And the third group are the ones that are just like, no, that's not for me. Now, my question for us as a community is this which group do you identify with? Because within this room, on the back of a screen, whoever, whoever's watching, whoever's connecting with this, th- there's probably different groups that we might identify. There's definitely these three different groups, and, and you might be in any one of those places. You might describe yourself as being part of the dismissive group. The, some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Maybe you come to this community thing because long ago you agreed with your husband or wife. Well, I'll keep coming. Uh, I'll, I'll keep attending. But I'm not sure this thing really makes sense. And it's, it's just we, we do it for the kids or, or whatever. There's, there's potential that in, even in a church environment, there's some people that are like, I, I can't buy in to this kind of thing. Church is fine to a point, Jesus is fine to a point, he has some compelling teaching, but, but I don't believe anything particular about him that might not be true of Buddha or any other great religious teacher. We might find ourselves in that group, and, and there's this other group, this curious group that if you're part of that dismissive group, I would invite you into, because this group is fascinating. This language that this writer Luke uses about them, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what Does this mean they are seeing and observing something that is supernatural and different, but their questions are, what is this? What what exactly is happening? Is this something that's accessible that I can be a part of? The, The Greek language behind the text that we don't necessarily see is made up of these two words, existimi, displaced, disrupted. The idea is to stand aside. Like when you see something unusual, shocking, you kind of step back and you just observe for a while. Maybe you ask that question, am I out of my mind? Am I really seeing and hearing what I think I'm seeing and hearing? But the, the language then moves on. The word perplexed, this word Thomazo, is to begin to chatter about. So so when I took a group of uh, missionaries up to the top of the mountains in Haiti, Haiti's got mountains beyond mountains, and they really just drop down into the ocean. It's quite spectacular. spectacular. And as we drove along these ridgelines, they would look out either side of the windows and just gasp. And then they would call to each other from opposite sides of the bus, are you seeing this? This is incredible. You maybe have your own experience that is the moment of pause, That moment where you can't speak, that moment where you're just blown away, you stand to one side, am I out of my mind? And then there's that moment where you start to maybe unpack with someone, maybe you think I know someone who would want to talk about this, and you begin to chatter. This is this process that these first curious people go through. Uh, A few years ago, I I was visiting my parents, and this rainbow that was just beyond a normal, normal rainbow appeared outside the house. There was actually a double one sort of over the top of it that you couldn't see. And whether it was just the light or the time of the evening, I remember people walking outside of their houses and just staring and stopping. Am I out of my mind? Am I seeing this thing? And then you would later unpack it and you would talk about it. Remember that time that we saw that rainbow that just... And you could probably pick lots of different Things that you have seen. Maybe the first time you drove towards the Continental Divide in Colorado and you just see this landscape drop away from it you're like, wow, am I really seeing this? There's that moment of pause and then that moment of conversation and that's exactly what is happening to this curious group. The movement that happens here is this movement from I just can't talk about this to and now I'm going to start to ask some questions. Amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, what does this mean? And one of my questions, if you find yourself in this curious group, maybe I would say even my apologies is this. I feel like sometimes, as followers of Jesus, we jump very quickly into language that isn't necessarily accessible. We use these words, partly because we don't have better words. So we maybe talk about sin and redemption. And even the word spirit, I would suggest, lands in that camp. If you're a follower of Jesus yourself, and I were to say to you something like, explain to me the Holy Spirit, but you're not allowed to use any religious language, what would you say? How would you describe this character that has just appeared in a distinct way in this point of the narrative? You can't rely on, well, of course it's the Holy Spirit, the third member of the divine trinity who came to infill the lives of believers, and suddenly that language has already lapsed into language that is only used in church. And so what I'd like us to do as a community for a second is to backtrack a bit and just start to unpack, what exactly is this? Who exactly is this character? What do we mean when we use a word like spirit? What even is spirit? And to do that, I would like a couple of volunteers. And if I have to stand here awkwardly until someone volunteers, I will. I don't don't like the Broncos. Lions don't play till tomorrow night. So, I need someone that isn't afraid to be just a little, you know, on stage. And, uh, and if I don't find someone soon, I'll have to pick someone. One person, thank you, Maya, way to go. Come up here, join us. And oh, so interesting, two guys volunteered in the first one and my wife volunteered in the second one. Okay, so, so here we go, we've got some, we've got some tools here. And um, two, two is perfect. Okay, there we go. So if you come over this side and sorry, what was your name again? Laura. Laura yeah. Laura. Laura great to see you. Maya Laura, welcome to the stage. So what I want you to do for a second is imagine yourself back in seventeen seventy six. Some stuff happened there that I'm told over this side of the pond is fairly important. It matters to you guys. We could argue all day about who was right and who was wrong and whether a benevolent king was usurped against and whether taxation without representation is really that bad, but we won't discuss that today. And, and so in the middle of this conflict, you have two sides and I have for you a red coat. Red coat. There we go. So. Picture yourself, you've got a, a noble revolutionary on one side, uh, and you've got a, the bad guys, sorry, the, the red coats on the other side. Yes. And, and during the, the battle, there is this moment of conflict. I guess they used swords maybe at times in that day and age. I, I don't really know. But these are swords. Okay. Um, they're stolen from my kid's tent. But during the conflict, there is this moment of striking each other with the swords. You guys can feel free to have at it. Just, you know... There we go. It was far more aggressive in the first service, I will say this, when we had two guys on stage. Uh, It got got vicious. And and during the conflict, what happens, the the good old revolutionary, the good guy, he attacks and he stabs the bad guy. And so there is this moment of tragedy, and and they fall to the ground. You don't have to fall to the ground, you can stand up. Um, But then the revolutionary, they dash off and celebrate with the other bad guys, and, um, and then our red coat stays here for just a second. Now this poor young soldier, 4,000 miles from home, one battalion fighting against 65 others in a way, most people would say just isn't fair, but uh, is, is tragically killed. Uh, and and then, then what happens when their friend, the other red coat, finds them? What do they want to know? Are they alive or are they dead? And how do they find out whether they're alive or dead? Well, maybe in this scenario, what they do is they grab a feather from their cap or whatever. I don't even know what they wore back then. But they, they do something. They grab a piece of paper or something. And they hold it over the mouth because they want to know what. Are they breathing? Are they, are they alive or are they dead? Is linked to this question. Are they breathing or are they not breathing? You can take a seat, Laura. Thank you very much. Very, very good volunteering. Let's give them a round of applause. Maya. Thank you so much. For thousands of years, when we talked about language or we look at ancient language, the language of breath and the language of spirit are very closely tied together. In Latin, we see the word spiritus, which is both breath and spirit. In Hebrew, the word ruach, breath and spirit. In Greek, the word pneuma, breath and spirit. What we've known just language-wise for years is that when something is breathing, it is alive, and when it stops breathing, it is no longer alive. There is something that has happened that has taken away the life, the breath gone. The two are tied together. So on a very basic level, the word spirit is simply the idea of breath. The writer Frederick Beekner would describe it like this. Spirit is an animating power, the livingness of that which is alive. You have breath, you have spirit. When, when breath is gone, you are no longer alive. And in the same way you would say this is, is that God has breath. God is spirit. Now, his aliveness is different to our aliveness. It is on a greater level, and yet there is a unity between the two. When you stop breathing, you are no longer alive. Breath is what gives you life, and God is spirit, and he gives is breath. So when we look back into the early parts of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. There is this idea that God's breath, God's Spirit is is brooding over this world that isn't yet taken shape, and then he breathes into things. He breathes specifically into humans, and they become alive in a distinct way. When Jesus unpacked who God was. He said, God is spirit, the source of life, yet invisible to mankind. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. There is something about spirit that is this animating power. If you like pictures as ideas, if they are the thing that connect with you, take a look at this picture. This is good old Crash from Finding Nemo swimming around doing his thing. And and look at the left-hand side of the picture. This is before they put light into the image. And this is after they put light into the image. And look at the way that the texture changes. There is something about that picture that is more alive, more real than this side that we see. And there is something about spirit that is the thing that gives life. If you are part of that curious group, to reduce it down to like non-religious language, spirit is this animating power that is the aliveness that makes things alive and then there's the question of this other group what does that mean for us as insiders what about the insider group which so many of us would say we are and are more comfortable with that language of the Holy Spirit and who he is what is happening in this text and what are we supposed to take from it there's this moment where something supernatural happens and God comes to we're told dwell within us in a different way It's not like the old story where God was accessible, connected with human beings, but external on the outside. What is happening in this moment that we're supposed to grasp and take away? Well, I would suggest there's two stories at least that are behind this story. One is implicit and one is explicit. One is kind of the story that that people would know in the first century. The other one is the story that Peter, one of the followers of Jesus, will talk about. So Aaron read this passage during worship. This is from Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones And say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath, spirit, life, animating power enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons on flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, and prophesy is simply uh, this idea of speak new things into, tell a better story for, give a preferred future to. Say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says: come, breath from the four winds, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. This text wrestles with the idea of lots of things are seen as dead. Can God bring life to that which is dead? And the idea within this text is, yes, absolutely he can. So for hundreds of years, this text hovers around this group of people, these Israelites, as as something that is important to their story. And yet when the thing actually happens, it doesn't look exactly like they're expecting. It turns out that when God talks about breathing into bones and them coming alive, is that possible? Yes, but in this story of the spirit, it happens in a different way. In this story of the coming of the Spirit, God takes everyday humans like you and I and comes to dwell within them, and that in itself makes us alive in a different way. This Jesus story has long been associated with the idea that God is not just external, not just giving rules, not on the outside, but he actually comes and lives within us and is transformative within us. These disciples, these followers of Jesus, are alive now in a new way that they weren't alive in before. Something significant has changed. And then there's the story that's explicit. There's the story that Peter actually shares. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. He addresses the dismissive crowd that says they've just simply had too much wine. He says, no, no, it's nine o'clock in the morning. That hasn't happened. That's just not proper. There's another story behind this. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes another old story. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. New things will happen. God's spirit may have interacted with the odd, unusual person in the old stories, but now this story is for everybody. Anybody can participate in this interaction with the spirit. This is how spectacularly the story changes. In this moment, and this is why for thousands of years we might say, this is the moment that the church is born. Jesus' death and resurrection were leading to this moment where you and I can interact with this Holy Spirit in a completely different way than was ever accessible before. You might say this, the Spirit is the one who animates the life of Jesus' followers, the one without whom nothing is possible and with whom nothing is possible. Impossible that we will read in this book, Acts is only possible. Because of this moment right now in chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. This is the moment where this group of everyday people will become people that can change the world. This is the moment where a group of 11 people who really, if they're honest, are probably hiding, terrified that the same thing that happened to their leader might happen to them. This is the moment where all of the, the things that take shape over 2,000 years become possible. This story is our story. And yet the tension point, I would say, if you're a follower of Jesus, is this. Are we insiders with the same questions as the curious group? Now, if you're sitting here and you say, I'm part of the curious group, well, what I have to say, you're very welcome to listen in on and and gather what you can, but I'm not asking you to do anything because you haven't yet made this decision on who Jesus is. It's a decision that you're invited to make, but right now, you're free from having to do or having to ask this question. But but if you are, my question is, are we insiders with the same questions as the curious? If you think about this character of the Holy Spirit, do we have the same uncertainty as so many people who would say they are outside church? I have often wondered, I have this sort of working thesis that the Holy Spirit in church is kind of like when you have a wedding. If you have a crazy uncle who kind of does some unusual things, who acts differently, you have to invite them because they're family. But what you do is you put them on table 27 over in the corner with the Florida cousins that you weren't sure you wanted there either because it's just expensive to pay for the meals. And so you say, well, you sit out there, don't do anything unusual. Don't, Don't dance on tables. Don't act out. Don't do any of those things we're terrified that you might do. And I have this theory that within church life, this character of the Holy Spirit creates the same nervousness. The writer Gordon Fee said this, ask most followers of Jesus to draw a picture of the Holy Spirit. And what they draw is a, is a gray, oblong shape. We have the, uh, the, the, the humanity, the personification of God the Father in the Old Testament, so we might draw a picture that looks kind of like Gandalf the Wizard or something like that. We, we have this idea of what Jesus looked like, so we can draw him. But when it comes to this character of the Spirit, we're left with this sort of like, I just don't know. So this beautiful character that God introduces that Jesus talks about as a gift to the church gets pushed off to one side because we just don't know how to interact. And yet what Jesus promised was this, was this this spirit came to give life to us, that this spirit came to stand alongside of us in our lowest and weakest moments, that this spirit came to empower us, indwell us, that any life change that we experience, is because of this spirit. Later, the writer Paul will unpack these fruits of the spirit of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, all of these things that we might say as followers of Jesus were we're moving towards, and yet he leaves us no doubt that the only movement towards them is based on relationship and interaction with the spirit who is transformative. And I wonder if we just don't know how to interact with the Spirit. And maybe worse, for those of you that would describe yourself as curious, we owe you a deep apology because perhaps so often we're not really as transformed as the story which would suggest that we should be that you may have interacted with Christians of all sorts of backgrounds who seem to be no more loving or patient or kind or good than anybody else. And so we kind of have a credibility issue at times, maybe simply because we don't know how to interact with the Spirit. Uh, There's a song by a band called the Lumineers called Submarines. It imagines a world back in 1944, something like that, where submarines appear around the coast of America. And this guy sees one of them, a Japanese submarine during wartime, and he goes to tell everybody, and nobody believes him. And this is the lyrics I believe submarines underneath deep blue seas saw the flags Japanese. No one will believe me. An attack is imminent. Some big story is being shaped. And there's there's this, nerve. what do we do in this moment? And what he says is this. In the end, it boils down to credibility. I had none, so I will die with the secrets of the sea. This man has news to share. And yet, for whatever reason, whether his background or his history, nobody believes what he has to share. It's like the fairy tale of the boy who cried wolf. So many times he saw a wolf, he claimed, and and comes to tell the townspeople. And after a while, they say, but you're always lying. And then when a wolf does turn up, nobody believes him. This story talks about credibility, and I question whether we have the same problem. As a massive aside, when I searched submarines to find these lyrics, the first thing that came up was submarines for sale. And because no guy is ever much more than a 14-year-old boy, I actually spent 15 minutes just looking at what submarines were for sale and was very disappointed to find that they were all just pictures of submarines so i then googled real submarines for sale and found nothing good either but i just wanted to share that with you and apparently france has a little now a little political joke for you going on there uh, and so if you want one maybe there's some good deals right now there is this idea that the spirit is supposed to be this one who animates the life of jesus followers the one without whom nothing is possible and with whom nothing is impossible, and yet I wonder if those of us that would call ourselves followers of Jesus really live into that. This story speaks of this moment where the Spirit engages with humanity, and everything that we see take place in Acts is because of that moment, and yet when we ask ourselves what we see today, we might say, does it look like that? We'll wrestle during this series with the question, is it supposed to look like that? The stuff that happens in Acts that we might say, man, that that just doesn't seem like it fits with what we know of God. We'll wrestle with the question, are we supposed to copy these people or are they just humans figuring out how best to follow Jesus for themselves, how best to interact with the Spirit? But certainly it seems there are moments where through humans that are engaging with the Spirit, the world changes. And I think we long to see a world that changes whichever group you sit in dismissive curious or insider i would suggest you and i are invited into deeper engagement with this spirit and with his heart and who he is uh, and this writer that i quoted earlier frederick beatner has this fascinating passage that i just every time i read it it just engages and teaches me something more and i'd like to share it with you most of the time we tend to think of life as a neutral kind of thing And the common view is that life doesn't care one way or another any more than the ocean cares, whether we swim in it or drown in it. To say that God is spirit is to say that life does care, that the life-giving power that life itself comes from is not indifferent to whether we sink or swim. It wants us to swim. It wants us to swim. This picture that we are given of, of this Holy Spirit is this character that Jesus introduces as a counselor, someone who walks alongside, someone who places an arm around a shoulder in a lowest moment, someone who uplifts when we deeply need uplifting. And to say that behind this world is not just material, but is spirit is God, is this breath that gives life, this energy that gives animation, that that brings out all that makes this world alive, is to say that life is not indifferent to the struggles that every single one of us, dismissive, curious, or insider face, that each one of us has these moments where we would say, I feel like the ocean is dragging me down. The weight of this life, the struggle of this life, is just too much whether it's the fact that the bills come through the door with greater frequency than the money fills the bank account, whether it is simply the next argument with a child, with a spouse, with a sibling, whether it is the constant weight of I have employees to pay who rely on me, whether it is Any of those stories, the 24 out of 7 news cycle that that makes us feel weighed down, makes us feel hopeless. Any of those things in those moments, what this tells us is that this spirit, it doesn't want us to sink. It wants us to swim. He wants us to swim. You and I are invited into this relationship with this God who is Knowable who longs for us to be something different than we are. We started off with that idea that an animating power, the livingness of that which is alive, but that in itself isn't enough. What the story of Acts tells us is this, that this Holy Spirit is not just an animating power. He is knowable, relational, and longs to be with us in a particular way. He is God's great gift to this world, and doesn't deserve or need to be pushed to the side of the church because he's just a little bit more difficult to understand. Whether dismissive, curious, or insider, you are invited into relationship with this spirit in a new and particular way. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up on stage, and we're going to take a moment to pray together and to begin to engage with that God, that spirit that loves us. God, for myself and for my friends as we wrestle with this text this moment where this church comes alive we see it take place because a group of people that were scared and lost and leaderless encounter your spirit and we may have so many questions about just what that means still God I pray as we worship together again as we sing together again that you would speak. For those of us that find ourselves or who would call ourselves inside us, would you remind us of this deep longing you have to be relational with us? That you offer transformation. May we surrender the things that hold us back, the lifestyle issues, perhaps even the intellectualism, the reliance on knowing every single detail. And may we acknowledge that maybe not everything about this world can be known intellectually, that there is this deep mysticism in the world, this story behind the story. May we engage in a new way with your animating power, the breath that gives life, May we be shaped by you into people that are compelling, that are different. Not different because we're special, but different because you are doing a deep work inside of us. For those of us that find ourselves to be curious, maybe there's just this cry, this question of what does this mean? And maybe we don't cry it into the world around us, but we cry it to you, the God that we may not even be sure exists. Maybe it's a prayer that allows you to speak into our lives for the first time. And maybe we find ourselves to be dismissive and yet our curiosity is just a little awakened by this compelling idea of a God behind this world that longs for us to swim. that in our lowest moments of uncertainty, of fear, of brokenness, in those moments where the ocean feels like it's vast and indifferent, that you are rooting for us, that you want us to swim. Wherever we find ourselves in this story, in whichever group, may we experience a new relationship with you, Holy Spirit. May we look for your friendship and find that you are very like Jesus. Thank you that you want us to swim. Amen if God is working in your life through this ministry join us in reaching others by partnering with us today you can give online at southfellowship.org or on the South Fellowship Church app thanks for listening South family have a great rest of your day